You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to yet another Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today we're looking at the question, do we share the same values as the US with Bishop George Browning? The death of a peace negotiator in the Philippines. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy. Spider crabs molting in Port Phillip Bay with Neil Blake. The increasing need for an independent Australia. He's speaking with Bevan Ramsden. But first, no, it's not Kevin Healy. He's unwell, but hopefully will be back with us next week. But best wishes to him. So we'll start with Jake Gregg. Journalist and political prisoner Julian Assange has been incarcerated in the notorious Belmarsh prison in south-east London since May last year, and his health deteriorates daily as he fights extradition to the US where he faces framed-up charges of espionage with a combined potential sentence of 175 years. Once again, the case has been delayed, this time till the 7th of September. I've been speaking with activist and journalist Jacob Gregg, and I asked him first what he could tell us about Julian's condition and where the case is against him. He's not doing too well, and listeners might not be surprised to hear. You know, he's in a cell built for terrorists in appalling conditions. He's not been given basically hardly any access to his legal team or to the equipment he needs to mount his defence. Been a outbreak of COVID at the jail and he's not been given access to masks, and he's suffering respiratory illness anyway. He always has, but exacerbated by his time just in um, one room in the embassy. The jailers, the warders, aren't given masks either. He's being kept in an appalling environment, locked up 22, 23 hours a day, most days, and sometimes it's more than that, sometimes a little less. In a establishment coronavirus hotspot, and they're not being given any access to PPE. It's almost like they're trying to kill him, would you believe? I could well believe that. But the actual case is going from, you know, I was going to say from the sublime to the ridiculous, but it's long since past that point. It's, it's going to the macabre. Last month, or not June, sorry, and the United States Department of Justice issued a superseding indictment what that means is that there was an indictment that the, um, that the extradition case was being heard on. The US said to Britain, we've got an indictment against this bloke. We request that you hold him for us so that we can bring him up to the United, back to the United States where he can, he can be charged under these 18 offences. That's what he's being held for and that's what the case is about, whether he can be indicted to the United States under these offences. Now, I think it was early June, the United States issued a superseding indictment which didn't have any extra charges, but changed some of the charges and most importantly, changed the charges in two ways. First of all, they broadened the the time frame, whereas the initial indictment referred to events around 2010 and to do with the Iraqi and Afghan war logs. The indictment now goes from the start of WikiLeaks right up until the almost present time for when the indictment was was issued. 
and, uh, and goes through everything WikiLeaks has done. It talks about their assistance with um, Edward Snowden, for example. It talks about um, Julian Assange talking at cyber conferences and um, technology conferences, encouraging people to, to leak classified information. So broad, you or I could be found guilty of it, mate. The person listening to this could be found guilty of it. It's that the charges are so broad. And it seems that this indictment was brought up particularly to fill the gaps, the gaps, the bloody holes, that were blown apart in, um, this, in, in the first week of this hearing by um, Julian and WikiLeaks um, defence attorneys, Fitzgibbon um, and um, Mark Summers. But the interesting thing is that while this indictment has been released and been put online by the Department of Justice, it was never filed with the British court. So we're in a ridiculous state at the moment where Assange is being held in Britain on the strength of one indictment so that he could be extradited to the United States to face trial under a totally separate indictment. That would be like holding you in Britain for murdering Paul and then being sent to the United States and said, well, no, it's actually for, for murdering Peter, but it's still a murder who gives a shit, you know. This is what they're doing. They're just so in total contempt. The other thing about the indictment is because it is so broad, it covers such a long period of time, and it also mentions and ropes in so many other people, it's unlikely to be over within years, let alone before the before the US election, which is what I think it was it was aimed at. And this could tie up the court case for years. It's it's just crazy. Like whereas the previous indictment was specifically about the Iraq and Afghani war logs, this new indictment goes to the very heart, I dare say, of what investigative journalism is. And the way it's been put together and the way it's been um, not given to the British courts, it just tramples all over any sense of, of justice. Now, this case trampled over any sense of justice anyway, but this has taken things like everybody involved is just standing there shaking their heads going, what? How do we even fight this thing? There's also the case that what might happen now is because this has changed the game so much that the British courts might be forced to release Julian at the next hearing in September, at which time he would be immediately re-arrested on the superseding indictment. It seems like a lose-lose situation. Well, not just for Julian, but for the concept of um, transparency in the free press. Well, where does it leave the justice system in the UK if they're allowing this to happen? Well, mate, I think the justice system in the UK has had a shadow on it for some time now, you know, from how far do you want to go back to Eureka Stockade? You know, the Maimai, the, you know, it's the justice system in the UK is doing what the justice system in the UK has always done, and that is used its rule of law, backed by its might of arms, to stop people who are questioning or opposing the status quo. That's what the British justice system is for, that's what they've always done, and that's what they're doing. What's happening now is because of organisations like WikiLeaks, because of the work that Julian did, and let's, and let's, let's um, just get on to what the 
what the work is. People are saying that getting people to leak confidential government documents, whether they be war logs or, you know, the Clinton emails or whatever, is then contrary to democracy. Every major news site in the world, for a start, use the information provided by WikiLeaks to sell newspapers. That's one. Secondly, every major news organisation in the world, including the ABC and all our commercial ones, now have similar technology on their websites that they call confidential drop boxes or whatever that you can post stuff anonymously. So while WikiLeaks and in the persona of Julian, because it's not about Julian, it's about the concept, is being tried for espionage under a hundred-year-old, you know, First World War US Act, what is being charged for has now seemingly been made part of the course and an everyday occurrence for every major news organisation on the planet. How does one deal with that? It's interesting that um, when you look at um, the new Joe Biden's presidential running mate, sorry, I'm just replugging my phone in, I saw it speaking at me, Kamala Harris said a couple of years ago that she was trying to draw that there should be a bright line drawn between the actions of WikiLeaks and mainstream news publications. I think she cited the New York Times. The Obama administration, when they tried to arrest Assange, said they didn't because of their what they called their New York Times problem. That meaning that if they arrested Julian or they charge WikiLeaks, they'd have to charge the New York Times and one assumes by extension every mainstream media outlet in the United States, if not the world. You know, I, I guess what I'm saying is what he did is now being seen as, you know, it's almost axiomatic as a way for news organisations to, to gather news. And this is, of course, not just because of them. Um, because of the technology, by doing this, they, of course, like everything else, um, outsource their work to the general public. They don't need reporters going around, sniffing around, sniffing around, sniffing around. They've got people sending in stories, and then only then do they need to send a reporter out to further investigate. So it's, I guess, the problem of being on the cutting edge is what Julian was, was up for. Now, the other interesting thing about the indictment is... They're relying on a fair bit of testimony from undercover operatives with the FBI in putting the indictment together. Now, a lot of it comes from a bloke who's named Sigurdor Thoridsen, Iceland's bloke, known as Siggy the Hacker. And a lot of the indictment is based on information provided to the American Department of Justice by the FBI of information they received for this bloke. Now, this is a bloke is in jail or was in jail in Iceland for three years for embezzling, I think, about 50,000 US dollars, maybe 60,000 US dollars from WikiLeaks by forging Julian's signature. And then not only that, he got charged with pedophilia. And the way he got charged with pedophilia, and this is sexual assault on nine boys, is that after he's fallen out with WikiLeaks and he, and, and he left, WikiLeaks went through his computer. And when they found this information, disturbing images, including child abuse, on this guy's computer, WikiLeaks turned it over to the Icelandic police. Far from being complicit in um, hiding crimes, they've actually been, in, in this case at least, proactive in stopping this kind of shit going on. And, and I want to remind 
and listeners um, that close to 30 years ago now, Julian as a young bloke assisted the Victorian police in cracking the biggest pedophile network online that had ever been cracked, resulting in dozens of arrests and charges. And now they're using the same sort of, you know, they're using people like this who were in the employ, knowingly, it's open, it's not just a rumour, it's admitted that he was an employee of the FBI at the time he was working for WikiLeaks, defrauding WikiLeaks, embezzling money for WikiLeaks and using WikiLeaks computers to indulge in his child exploitation, I don't know what the word strong enough is, and they're using people like this to run indictments against not just Julian, but the whole of WikiLeaks and roping in so many other people who were involved with WikiLeaks over the years. So, you know, when you just look at just the, just that one isolated thing of where this information is coming from, you can see that there is absolutely no thoughts to justice, to right or wrong. He's been called an enemy of the state. WikiLeaks has been called a hostile, non-state terrorist organisation. And they're out to get him, and that's all there is to it. And it's going to take more than the British justice system to make sure he's free. It's going to take the Australian justice system, but, but I don't believe that's going to happen either. It's also good to remind people that not one of those media outlets over those years has now come forward and supported Julian. No. In fact, I, I think what's happened is they've realised that the best way they could save their own backsides is by attacking him and singing from the same songbook as in the US government. They've seen what happens when you support Julian, when you support WikiLeaks. You know, apart from everything else, what the US government has done has been relentlessly attacked people who have supported Julian and WikiLeaks, letting people know you can't support people like this or you will be attacked too. All the people who put bail up for him, for example, after the initial arrest, lost it because he sought refuge in the Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian embassy. You know, you cannot support someone like Julian. And even grassroots activists, you know, people like myself, people in Australia, people in Germany, people in the US and the UK, all over the world, who are supporting Julian, have been attacked and maligned and called all number of things. Now, that's not important, but the, the important thing is that while it doesn't stop some of us continuing to, to act on what we believe is you know, the right thing to do, it does stop other people. Just as an example, I had a young bloke, a friend of one of my kids, who I was talking to well, two years ago. No, not quite two years ago, a year ago anyway, in, in, in a pub in Brunswick. And he was totally on side with the campaign. He knew it was going on. He was following it. He thought it was an atrocity. He raised an issue with me. And I asked him for a hand organising the next rally because he had particular skills that I could have used to do with them sound tech. He said, oh, I can't, mate. He said, I can't be said to be supporting this publicly. to suicide. And this kid was 20 years old. But that's how people are feeling. That is what this indictment, this is what the attacks of the state are doing to people. This is 3CR, Tuesday Home Time, and I'm speaking with Jacob Gregg, activist and broadcaster. Well, looking at what's, what's happening here in Australia, I know there's a, a lot of laws being passed or trying to pass laws under the cover of covert. Just focus on one, and that's 
to do with the Australian Signals Directorate. First, who are these people in this organisation? <laughs> Look, we don't know because it's all classified <laughs> officially. We don't know their budget and all that kind of thing. We don't know who their employees are. What we do know is the Australian Sign- Signals Directorate, it used to be called the Defence Signals Directorate, is an arm of the Department of Defence and its main role is as basically running communication spying as part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. It's the Australian end of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. You know, I like to refer to as the White End of Speaking Boys Club. America, the United Kingdom, the United States, New Zealand and Australia. Now, they run a whole lot of things in Australia. For example, they, um, they're the people who are involved with Pine Gap, with the Echelon Network. We know, for example, that well, we don't know exactly how many people work for them. We know that 500 new jobs have just been created. You know, they've just got another 100 or 200, or just 120 plus 60, close to $200 million to expand its intelligence capabilities. And they're saying that that's to better understand and respond to cyber threats on a national scale. Okay, so the ASD are the people who monitor intelligence in Australia and particularly to do with the internet and satellite communications. That's what they are. They're a branch of the Australian government. Now, interestingly, and gosh, I've just forgotten his name for the moment, the guy who was second in command of the ASD was appointed earlier this year as the, the head of the military response on the COVID task force. Yes, so the ASD has been brought in to run the military response to Australia's COVID crisis. And as well as that, people like Josh Frydenberg, finance minister, for Christ's sake, has suggested, and it's working, his suggestion's been taken on board, that the international response to COVID be led by the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. That is Australia, UK, Canada, New Zealand and Britain. uh, And US, sorry. So... The ASD is a is one of those is one of the major spy operations in Australia. What is done at the moment is um, let me have a look here. I've got a, I'm just looking through my notes. They've changed the laws to allow the ASD. See, previously, let me get back. Most laws, most Western countries, the British Western countries, the Five Eyes Western countries, have laws which stop their governments spying on their own citizens because of the the concept of freedom and civil liberties. However, what it hasn't stopped is spying on other country citizens. So while, for example, the ASD hitherto for couldn't spy on you or I directly, one of its partner agencies, you know, like GCHQ in, in New Zealand, could spy on you or I directly and then transfer that information to the ASD. So what's this doing is just getting rid of the need for that loophole and allowing the ASD to, to spy directly on, on Australian citizens, all, of course, because of cybercrime. And cybercrime, is um, and they're calling cyber attacks, and, of course, cyber attacks is the new reason they're giving for their hardline stance against China. You know, we've seen, for example, a, a New South Wales parliamentarian recently arrested 
because of alleged links to China. Chinese influence through um, cyber means, all his computers taken. This is all done by the ASD, and it's about beefing up the power of the state. That's that's all there is to it. Australia, of course, has passed more anti-terror laws than any other country in the world, and surveillance laws and anti-privacy laws, you know, than any other country in the world um, since the attacks on the World Trade Center, citing the war on terror as the reason for doing this. Yeah, we have a situation where, um, look, those anti-terror laws, for example, didn't stop small acts of terror, like a mad bloke driving his car down Swanson Street, nor did it stop things like the Bali bombing, at which time it may have been prevented if Australia hadn't been putting all its resources in the region into bugging the East Timor, Timor Embassy so that we could get a, a better deal on, on the oil price. I mean, it's not really about stopping crime. It's not really about stopping terrorism. What it's about is beefing up the power of the state, which is doing what it will always do, and it's arm itself with what Thomas Friedman referred to as the iron fist within the velvet glove of capitalism, arming itself with the military to ensure its access to resources and keep the flow of wealth going from the poor to the rich. And that's what all of these laws are about. Sorry, I've gone off track there. Jacob, over the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on the involvement of the Australian government in Duterte's draconian anti-terror yeah. laws in the Philippines. We also know that the Australian government, in addition to general aid, is the second largest contributor in military terms to the Philippines behind the US, and Australian troops are in the Philippines. The Philippines military are trained both here and there. But you have a story to tell which goes right back to the beginning of the 20th century, which ties Australia and the US into the Philippines, which continues to this day. What's that story? Well, first of all, it's, um, and I'll come back to this towards the end, but Australia is the second largest, well, has been the second largest contributor to Philippine military. We're over there training. We do all kinds of things. I think they're also involved in the um, Jakarta Law and, Law and Order Centre that is funded by Australia. But the Philippines has just ended its um, SOFA, Status of Forces Agreement, with the United States. Now, that means that Australia is the only country with a Status of Forces Agreement with the Philippines, and it places us in a very, very funny position um, vis-à-vis our position with America in the South China Sea. The Philippines recently going hot and cold, doing deals to export the resources in the South China Sea with China, and um, just last week, and complaining that China had broken its um, had entered its exclusive economic zone on Reef Shoal, and then China upset because the Philippines built a landing base on Reef Shoal. But of course, the Philippines are saying it's for um, peaceful purposes. But going back, back to the beginning of the 20th century, I guess the end of the 19th century, when the Spanish-American War happened and America took control of the Philippines, what was happening at the time was a major reallocation, I guess, realignment of imperial forces in, in the Pacific. America was just emergent. Britain, of course, had been involved in the Boxer Rebellion and 
have been in the region since the development of Australia and, of course, um, its colonial rule of India. But they got to a point where they were moving out of the Asia-Pacific region to home port in lands in seas closer to to Britain, primarily concerned with the rearmament of Germany that was taking place at, at the turn of the 20th century, which of course ultimately led to the First World War. But what happened is, at the time, because America was increasing its presence in the Pacific and taking advantage of the removal of British forces from, from the area and building the base on the Philippines, Australia was concerned, always, you know, being a racist country, concerned about being a, a bastion of, of white anglophone, you know, white anglophone country in, in Southeast Asia. You know, the yellow peril come long before communism. And at the time, the Americans were putting together a show of force primarily through the Pacific that they called the Great White Fleet. Prime Minister Deacon actually invited them into Australia on their circumnavigation, their proposed circumnavigation of the world. At the time, the Americans said that Roosevelt, I think it was, the first Roosevelt, said that the biggest threat the Americans were going to face in their in the Great White Fleet was the, um, the exuberance of the Australians who kill them with love. And that's pretty much what happened. They came over here, we hosted their ships, we gave them keys to the ports, we gave them everything, you know, we, dare I say, we, we fed them, fucked them and watered them as we do to foreign troops. And it came out, you know, 60 years later that at the time the Americans had secret plans where they were mapping our ports because they saw Australia as a potential enemy because we were still part of the British Empire. So the American presence in the Philippines and the end of the Spanish-American War led to Australia being let down by the mother country, the United Kingdom, and the process of starting to throw its lot in with the United States. And over the years, that has become more and more and more to the front of our foreign policy that we now have, we're now known as the United States' deputy dog in the region. It's nothing new, I guess, is what I'm saying. Where does it leave us for the near future with this, all this stuff going on with China? All the stuff going on with China is very interesting, and, and particularly, as I said, in regards to um, the, the Philippines ending its uh, status of forces agreement, I think, and um, it's got a different word in the Philippines, the Visiting Forces Agreement, I think they call it. Our ones are called the SOFAs. It makes you feel relaxed and comfortable having the status of forces agreement. And what it does is it puts us in a very tricky situation in regard to our support of America in the Philippines, where the Philippines seems to be doing deals with China over the South China Seas, particularly in the Spratly Islands and on Reef Shoal. But that's just a part of it. You know, you mentioned before under the cover of under the cover of COVID, another interesting development with the cover of COVID is um, the Osmin talks, the um, yearly ministerial talks that happen between Minister of Defence in Australia and the Secretary for Defence in the United States. It was supposed to happen this year by teleconference because of COVID, but at the 11th hour, we got called in to a face-to-face meeting. And one of the themes that was talked about there was the response to COVID. 
and interesting that this is talked about at a defence meeting. And it was decided that Australia and the United States would work together in the region to counteract the spread of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, when you look at the military counteracting the spread, they're not actually talking about any health issues here. What they're talking about doing is increasing their influence and control of the shipping ways and the ports in the South Pacific Ocean, ostensibly to help the fight against corona, but in reality as um, the latest form of neo-imperialism in, in the region. So under the cover of corona, so many things are being introduced. You know, we're having red tape being cut, fast track, they call it, and the mining um, projects and road projects in remote areas to keep the economy going during the pandemic. So environmental things are being crushed. We're having laws being introduced, even the laws that a lot of 3CR listeners would possibly agree with to do with the lockdown um, are not laws that make epidemiological sense about things. I, I was talking to one of my kids in Melbourne and just yesterday and she said that she needed to get down to the shops and she realised 8 o'clock was coming along and the local 7-Eleven was crowded because everybody was needing to get in there and get back before 8 o'clock and it led to, you know, what you and I might remember and some younger listeners won't as a, as a 6 o'clock swill taking place, you know, as, as people try to get back to their homes before lockdown. It's a crazy situation and these laws, while they're being used and arguably people are putting them in for the right reasons and supporting them for the right reasons, that's a whole separate argument, but these are laws which are put in place to curtail our movement which will not be taken off the books as soon as the pandemic is over. They'll be there to be implemented at other times. And when we're looking at laws, we also need to look, I guess, at mentioned the Philippines before, Duterte's laws in the Philippines. He's introduced these new terror laws at a tie when he's broken ties with the United States, at a tie when he's increasing his involvement with China and Russia. Human rights organisations all around the world are opposing them. And last month in Sydney, a mob of Filipino artist activists got together to send a message to Duterte and the Filipino people saying they oppose the laws. Already there have been thousands of murders um, under Duterte's regime since he came to power, what, four or so years ago. Journalists have been tried. And while this is all terrible, and I'm not playing down the, the awfulness of Duterte's laws, most of the laws don't actually go as far as some of the laws that have been introduced in Australia. We've had people in jail, prisoner Jay, without even anyone knowing he was in jail for crimes. We're still not even allowed to know he committed in jail for a year. So Duterte is implementing these laws, which is, I guess, different. Whereas in Australia, we have much the same laws, but at the moment, you know, social sensibility and political sensibility is not using them. The difference between what's happening in the Philippines and Australia isn't the legislation, but it's the government's ability to use them. So I think people need to, to be aware of that. And when we look at the Philippines and these laws, look at our own laws and say, what is the difference? Of course, we have a much more accountable government in Australia than they have in the Philippines, though less and less so. But that could change overnight. Many people 
look at what's happening in Australia and think, well, why is it happening? We're a very compliant society. Hardly anyone ever puts their head up and shouts about anything. Why do we have to have these laws here? I spoke about that a bit on my on my show on Friday, last Friday, thanks for the plug. But people are fearful. The state, the government, has always used its divide and rule line. They've used it against blackfellas, they've used it against communists, they've used it more recently against refugees and against Muslims. And while some people bought that line and others pretended to because they're racist shits or whatever... People did see through that. They knew that all, not all Muslims were terrorists, you know, or all Asians or all homosexuals or, or whatever. But what they've got with COVID is there's a thing about the militarisation of our language that's been happening at the moment about the response to COVID. So many people, government leaders, are using militarised language to deal with a medical problem, you know, saying things like, it's a cunning enemy and every Victorian must do their bit and we need to fight this and combat this and our health staff are heroes on the front line and and all this militarised jargon, you know, I'm always waiting for an ad to come out saying all the way, you know, Uncle Dan needs you, to be honest. By creating this sort of tension, you're making people fearful and COVID is a perfect enemy to the state because you can't see it and it can attack anyone equally. So people are moving towards, and it's not just coming from COVID, it was in place, you know, as I said, with refugees and Muslims. It's been escalating since 9-11. People are afraid. And I think that's the first thing we need to deal with is not the pandemic of of coronavirus, which is important, not playing it down, but the pandemic of fear and compliance which seems to be infecting the Australian population at an alarming rate, even more virulently than the COVID virus. Okay, thank you. Give us a couple of reasons why people should listen to your Friday rave. Because apart from shows like Jan's, and you'll get me raving about things that you don't hear of on mainstream media and, in fact, on most other programs on 3CR, because often say things that a lot of people are thinking but are feeling that they can't say publicly. And also because everything I say, I'm happy to provide background information, links and site to work for. So if you want the information on what's actually happening from the source, give us a listen. Good eye, thank you. Thanks a lot, Jan. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 
3CR Radical Radio. Next on Tuesday Home Time, Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre and of course Neil is also the Port Phillip Baykeeper. And first up, Neil, a concern about spider crabs and the need for protection. To me there are two, one is a spider and one is a crab. What's a spider crab? They've got very long legs, so they're a large crab, you know, um, not the small sizes that you tend to see on, generally on shore. Probably haven't got the exact figures, but their legs might be a couple of hundred millimetres long. What really distinguishes them, though, is their seasonal behaviour, where they actually aggregate in huge numbers. You know, like some people say, half a football field or more, where there's there's this massive crabs that all come together. <laughs> this has been occurring down at, uh, on the peninsula, particularly where Gary and Rye, over a number of years, and uh, during this period there. Uh, they're actually molting their shells uh, in preparation for growing a new one. So that's a bit of a developmental phase. Because of this, they're quite vulnerable, you know, so they do it at the safety in numbers. That's the thinking behind it, why they gather together in such huge numbers. It also means that they're vulnerable to predation from a range of, you know, like stingrays and pieces like that that uh, just love a spider crab. People with uh, drop nets, though, off the piers, and that's uh, cause for alarm. So do they come together in the water or out of the water? They seem to come into near shore. It's not really known uh, where they spend their days for most of the year, but they come in close to shore uh, for these molting um, uh, occasions, particularly if they're under piers, then they're all the more accessible to people who want to catch them. But the other thing is, they're also accessible to people who want to see them and celebrate them. You know, so there's this current situation down on the peninsula where conflict between the people who want to catch the crabs and uh, people who want to just enjoy nature and marvel at some of the nice things going on in the world <laughs> rather than the bad things. What does a crab look like when it doesn't have a shell? I guess they're pretty much the same shape, but they're pretty globby though. They, they, they uh, a little bit floppy, for want of a better word. Also very vulnerable, though, because the cells obviously give them some protection from the things that might want to have a go at them. Whilst they're without their shells, they're, they're more vulnerable. So, uh, it's an important stage, obviously, in their, their life cycle. The thinking is it may be critical to the preparation for breeding or for the next generation to survive. You know, if they don't actually get through that, well, then that that um, means that the next generation's chances uh, of, of reproduction reduced. So people like eating them? Perhaps a very small proportion of the community that find them good to eat, but uh, I'm not sure that they have especially um, any great nutritional benefits or anything fantastic taste-wise, but... Uh, there are some people who have been wanting to catch them, and the current regulations allow up to 30 crabs per day to be taken by uh, someone with an um, appropriate fishing licence. And that's really not based on any real understanding of the spider crab's 
population status or it's just sort of something that's applied to crabs in general. A knowledge gap, I guess, in terms of actually setting limits. And so it just seems that um, putting in a seasonal no-take period for when they're particularly underneath the piers would make it that little bit harder for people to um, just go down and catch them willy-nilly. And who's in charge of that to protect them? Yeah, a Victorian Fisheries Authority uh, a uh, government agency whose responsibility is to uh, regulate the fishery. They have just recently initiated a study where they're radio tracking 15 of the spider crabs to see where they go after that month period. The general thinking is they may go out of Port Phillip Bay altogether or into the middle of the bay into deeper waters where there's less likely to be divers who might see them. The point of the study is to, to see if, if the animals that are in the bay actually interact or have connections with the wider Victorian population. So we'll just have to wait and see how that goes with the, the radio tracking. It's still a limited number of crabs being studied and, and my guess is that there will still be significant questions to be answered in terms of our understanding of the overall population uh, and also uh, how uh, safe they are, I suppose, or secure as a population as opposed to being vulnerable. What do they feed on? Crabs in general are sort of uh, detritivores, or they'll just pick up um, you know, bits of decaying organic material uh, uh, from the seabed. That could be bits of dead fish or even um, organic plant matter, I suppose. So I'm not um, right up, not up to speed with that, but uh, yeah, that's my understanding is that they uh, just pick up any small fragments of uh, organic particles that they can find. During the lockdown and increasing lockdown, people are still able to do litter studies to find out what's going down the creeks and the rivers and into the bay? It's a little bit problematic. There, there are some... Uh, Studies that it's a matter of being able to be demonstrate if it's an organisation that actually has paid people to be involved in doing that or even organising volunteers to do it. You need to be able to demonstrate that it's like an essential activity. I've done a couple of uh, samples of myself on the Darabin Creek though. I mean, I, I think it's, it's probably not a problem with uh, one or two people together provided they're appropriately socially distanced and also, you know, with a proper PPE, mask, etc. To be able to do that sort of stuff, probably be one later on today. As a matter of fact, that's part of my uh, hour of exercise. And what are you finding? That's something that... Uh, yeah, I've actually found a couple of myrtles on the Dorman Creek the other day, which, um, which is up sort of near Plenty Road, you know, so... Uh, Limited, I haven't seen many of them up here before, but there's certainly a lot of um, plastic drink bottles, the common sort of um, food packaging, that's probably the main thing, I suppose, but often they're shredded, though, so, you know, or broken up and fragmented into smaller particles. But, yeah, there's a whole, any, any range of stuff that you might find there. Uh, I found a, a hose, a garden hose, a few weeks ago. It was a rather surprise. Is it a, a problem, though, that it, it's all up to volunteers to do that and you're not properly funded to do it? Well, I think, you know, that's sort of one of the um, big questions that... Uh, well, Melbourne Litter have actually uh, initiated a, a major project, or it's only over the next six months, the Waterways Blitz, 
which we'll have a focus on later, and they're calling for suggestions, I think, today's the cut-off point on those suggestions. But, you know, so there is some... But one of the concerns that I've got, though, is that there hasn't really been a focus on documenting microplastics, you know, and so one of the, the focus on clean-up, which, again, as you say, it's about the community, that's their job to go out and be, look after the environment, and it is sort of letting industry off the hook a bit, and that's really what came out through the... Um, recent Four Corners program on, on the recycling debacle in Australia is that industry is really relying on this mindset that they've implanted in government and communities that it's the consumer's responsibility to um, recycle things properly and also to keep things tidy and dispose of things properly. Whilst that focus has been on those areas, there hasn't been any real assessment of uh, the types of plastics that are being produced, that being a problem because many of them are simply not easily recyclable. The huge proportion are actually um, made of different polymers and if they're all mixed in together, that all adds to the cost of the whole recycling process. Uh, therefore, recycling is simply not economically viable option compared to creating new plastics. So that's the current scenario and it comes down to just uh, that focus on putting the responsibility on community and consumers to take care of the problem uh, as opposed to being some proper genuine government regulation of an industry and the products that are generated by it. Were you surprised at the findings of this program that it, and also the fact that it's taken so long to actually expose what is happening? No, I wasn't surprised. <laughs> I was aware that that's been going on all along. Actually, uh, I remember well, probably about five or six years ago, I got to meet Charles Moore, who's the fellow um, who found the discovered the North Pacific garbage patch when he was sailing from Tasmania to California on his way home. Uh, he's an interesting guy, you know. He um, has been a plastics uh, in the ocean plastics campaigner since those days and uh, but his family background though was from the fossil fuel industry so he's uh, obviously aware of what the industry uh, was up to and uh, he told me that at the time that they actually the fossil fuel industry actually founded keep america beautiful so he sort of uh, got that rolling so those kind of um, I suppose manipulations for a better work of, uh, of community understanding has been sort of ongoing ever since plastic was started to be produced. And uh, when there was concerns, particularly around the 1970s, I suppose, that's when the recycling um, push came in and they really focused on the possibility of recycling, even though, as I say, the greater proportion of items that are being produced are simply not um, viable from an economic point of view to recycle. Well, how do you counter all that, Neil? Has it gone too far to get reaction now? It's quite a a tricky one because uh, one way would be, obviously, product stewardship regulations from the federal and state governments. They might, for example, say, okay, from now on, we're not going to accept plastic products being made from 15 different polymer types, you know, 15 separate types. We're only going to allow products to be manufactured if they're made of certain polymers that we know are easy to recycle and, uh, you know, don't cost the earth 
in terms of having the infrastructure to do it and dispose of it and manage it well. That's going to rely on government really uh, standing up to the plastics industry and uh, then that goes into questions well where do donations to political parties come from? <laughs> so there's, there's a whole lot of things that probably need to be considered in it, but if we don't have effective government regulation in the interests of the community and the environment as opposed to the industry, then we're going to have more of the same. The current estimates are that the exponential increase in the production of plastics worldwide uh, and uh, over the next so the different uh, figures that have been suggested, but, but 11, over the next 11 to 15 years, there's going to be as much plastic produced as there ever was before. The banning of plastic bags at supermarkets sort of goes into insignificance, doesn't it, when you, you see the yes, whole plastics right. industry? And also, they seem to be getting round that too, some of the supermarkets. They've, they've got their bags now and they say they're reusable or you go to a shop and they put something in and they say it's all right it's a reusable bag we can we can sell sell you something and put it in that yeah and again so that's where it comes back to the responsibility of the user to to reuse it you know and that's not always going to happen and again if you don't reuse it is it recyclable our problem is we don't really have economically viable recycling options. That requires specific equipment for different types of plastic. You need to separate them. You know, so there's a major sort of cost involved in doing that. And particularly the flexible plastics that you've got in bags, etc., can you know, cause problems for conveyor belts and all that sort of stuff. So only 10% of the sort of stuff that is uh, actually being produced is actually being recycled. The rest of it is either going into landfill or, or into the ocean or on land generally. It's a long story, so you know, the imagine question, what can we do? Well, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but uh, the uh, federal government inquiry in the marine plastic pollutions that was um, completed in 2016, the first recommendation of that was that any regulation to address the issue that would be enacted by government had to be based on sound peer-reviewed science. And so what I'm wanting to do and have been doing and focusing on over the last five or six years is actually systematic data collection where we're actually coming up with the evidence to show the extent of the problem and the need to the government to actually act. That's important and that's something that's if we don't have that uh, then government is off the hook in a sense because oh we haven't got the evidence. We know there's plastics but I mean how many People does it take to collect that and over what period? You know, so if we don't have a more scientifically rigorous way of presenting the evidence, then they'll find a way of uh, sliding out of it. Moving on to industrial fires in and around Melbourne, and they seem to be increasing as the months go by, what to be done and what should be done and what's not being done? Yes, there's been uh, numerous fires, and particularly over the last five weeks, you know, in fact, there's been three fires. One on the 1st of July was in Altona North at the Waste Transfer Station. They operate co-mingled transfer stations uh, with timber and building rubble and cardboard and some plastics. And then there's another one at the end of um, July in Thomastown, an auto wreckage. And lots of um, tyres on site there, so up to 4,000 tyres, as well as waste oils vehicle parts and bodies and then on 
more recently, in August the 9th, in Campbellfield, there was a battery recycling plant. They're significant in the sense that the process of fighting the fires and putting them out has shown the need to make sure that the uh, firefighting farms that don't actually escape to the site. You know, so um, there's potential for runoff into creeks with those uh, with chemical contaminants from the products that are being burnt, as well as uh, any firefighting plant. The problem we have there is um, that the EPA has been a little bit uh, constrained in, in their ability to... Um, they're more reactive rather than proactive, I suppose. And so um, some would say that the... Uh, and they, they might be reacting as best they possibly can, but the fires shouldn't be happening in the first place. I should also mention it's not only the runoff into the creeks, etc., but also the actual air pollution and emissions that uh, are carried to residential areas potentially uh, as a result of those fires is a major problem. The EPA Act, which has been a major concern, was to be enacted um, at the end of June this year, but has been delayed for 12 months. That's uh, constraining the EPA's um, ability, I guess, to be more proactive uh, and putting more pressure, I suppose, on uh, companies and industry that are perhaps being a bit cavalier with their practices. So one of the key clauses that I feel in the new Act, an interesting one in called the General Environmental Duty, whereby uh, any companies that were aware that the uh, practices were potentially put, you know, at creating risks for the environment could be prosecuted along those lines. And so uh, it was really putting more focus on industry to be doing the right thing you know, from the beginning not, and not just sort of uh, being a little bit slack about things. How are these fires started is a good question. Things being stored in the wrong way or whatever, possibly there's been some deliberate who knows, but we, don't, but we have to um, obviously have more perhaps uh, constraints on what sort of um, materials and products can be stored in proximity to each other and, and more scrutiny in, uh, to ensure that they're not going to be a problem. Not like in Beirut, you know, where there's a, a massive sort of stockpile of fertilizer that nobody even looked at for seven years. So it's got to be uh, proper uh, controls in, in place at all times and an effective EPA Act is probably the, the best way to make sure that that occurs. When does that come into operation, the new EPA? It was going to happen at the end of June of this year but that has been delayed for 12 months but community people uh, particularly from the Toxic Waste Alliance are calling for it to be uh, brought into action as soon as possible. Is it also the fact that these factories that have these noxious substances in them are too close to residential areas? Even if they're not, uh, it's a matter of which way the wind's blowing. It's very much luck of the draw, really. So, uh, uh, because the toxic fumes can be carried long distances right across Melbourne. So if the wind's strong enough and you're heading in the right direction, any particular direction towards it. Have you followed up on the one from a year or so ago? Was it Stony Creek was virtually dead? Is that? Have you been back to that one? No, I haven't uh, been back. That's something that I'm interested in keeping an eye on um, and getting back to the question of 
litter studies. I actually did collect some samples of plastics from the mouth of the Stony Creek um, following that fire, uh, which uh, I'm expecting to see an analysis done, a chemical analysis done, to see what sort of uh, contaminants they're carrying. It, it would be great if we had those kind of studies available from the government, really, because that's the sort of thing the EPA should be doing, because that's where we can get the evidence required to actually ensure that there is appropriate regulations and legislation put into place to reduce those threats. It's, it'd be good to actually do some sampling from the creeks nearby, for example, the latest fire up in Campbellfield. I think the Merlinston Creek uh, is potentially uh, threatened by that one. So there are possibilities, but it's a matter of having the resources to, to do the proper analysis. That's where the community might have to come together and uh, make that happen. And also communities being able to travel to places to check up on things under all the restrictions or under now. That's right. I, I, I'm sort of within the five-kilometre zone of the of the um, creek near Campbellfield, but uh, technically I might be um, uh, fined for being out of my, you know, from exercising too far away from home or something like that. You know, so it does make it a little bit tricky. How restricted have you been in the last couple of months with your work? Oh, well, I've basically been working from home, so I've been very restricted in that sense um, because uh, a lot of what I do is actually doing data collection and, uh, for example, we haven't done any Yarra River trawls. That's been a monthly program where we do an anti-net trawl in the Yarra and the Maribyrnong for microplastics there, but um, the boat that we use doesn't allow for much distancing. (laughs) So there's all of those sort of things that have been uh, put on hold, I guess, since around about April. Is there also a concern, Neil, that things are happening under the cover of covert that are damaging the environment, that people feel that they're able to get away with things because no one's watching? Nothing new about that. Again, I mean, one of the major issues across Melbourne, as has been for years, is illegal dumping. You know, so and that generally occurs wherever there's no immediate surveillance from people. In the streets, you know, so uh, people drive a little bit out of town and dump stuff on near the, in the bush or, you know, uh, some out-of-the-way places. That's been a practice. I'm not sure why it is, really, because uh, I suppose we do have transfer stations. Maybe it's a cost thing. Uh, but uh, generally, I suppose it's a cultural thing, though, too, you know, that people feel that uh, uh, if they can get away with it, they will. All I can say is... Keep well and hopefully this won't go on for too much longer. There's always going to be challenges, Jan, yeah, and uh, we just need to try and find, adapt as po- the best way possible and uh, it's great that you're keeping the show on the road anyway. So thanks very much for the opportunity to talk. BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott, divestment and sanctions. BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti on Saturday, August 29 at 7.30pm. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Eamon McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr Ronda Abdel-Fattah and Nisiba Farah. 
they'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism, and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. Boycott, divestment, sanctions, BDS Australia, is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au. BDS Australia is a 3CR support. World events increase the need for an independent Australia and voices are increasingly voicing this need. One is IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australia Network, and I spoke with the Newcastle convener, Bevan Ramsden, about a number of areas which need highlighting in these dangerous times. But first the focus was on long-time broadcaster here at 3CR, Ralph Knight, who died on the 31st of July. But Ralph was not only a valued broadcaster, with programs Swing and Sway, Steam Radio, Nostalgia Unlimited and Unitarian Half Hour, but a valued technician. Which brings in Bevan, who was one of those who worked towards and helped establish 3CR in the 1970s. I asked Bevan about Ralph as he knew him in the early days of 3CR. It made me very sad to hear his passing. He was a very likeable and cheery person and he made a significant contribution to community radio at 3CR over a very long period of time. Um, I can remember him back in the very early days of 3CR at Cromwell Street. Initially, he used his technical knowledge to help set up the studio electronics, and then he initiated his steam radio program, which has been maintained on 3CR, I think, for many, many years, perhaps up close to the present day, uh, some 40 years or more. We should acknowledge his significant contribution to 3CR as we mourn his passing. It's to hear him Bevan, we've got a number of areas to cover relating to peace and independence, starting with the issue of the US Marines entering Darwin. They've been arriving since June. Yes. How many of them? Well, a thousand, um, this was a couple of weeks ago, a thousand had already arrived and they were expecting finally a I think it's only 1,200 this year. Started off in March, the Minister for Defence said they would not be deploying US Marines because of the coronavirus. They would not be deploying them this year. Then maybe she got an order from Washington or something because a couple of months later she said we could be deploying them later this year. And then in May she made the announcement that they would be coming in June, July in, in batches we wrote to, IPAN wrote to the Minister, and I'm just reading it here, IPAN is dismayed at your decision to continue to accept US Marines into Darwin. As we informed you in our letter of 27th of May, the acceptance of foreign troops from a country with high levels of infection of coronavirus presents the residents of the Northern Territory with a serious health risk. Despite your assurances, the strict measures are in place prevent US Marines bringing the virus into Australia, already one case has occurred. We understand the Marines are coming from Okinawa and there's been an outbreak there with over 60 Marines infected with the virus. Now that man is in hospital in Northern Territory. We feel this breach of health security really supports what we've been saying and we then strongly urge the Minister to put the health security 
of the people of the Northern Territory first and foremost and prevent any further groups of Marines coming into Australia. She was warned and at least one has got through and is in hospital there and, and on the way to the touch things and met people. So, you know, it's a danger. And I wonder, uh, Jane, whether uh, she bothered, the Defence Minister bothered to check the, get the advice of the Chief Medical Officer or the uh, National Committee on Health precautions at the moment, or whether they succumbed to pressure and uh, agreed to this deployment. There is no reason why they have to come now to exercise with the Australian Defence Force. No reason at all that we can see. Where are they based? Well, they're based at Robertson Barracks in Darwin, which is a barracks shared with Australian Defence Forces. When we had the IPAN conference last year, we went out to Robinson Barracks to do a protest at the front gates. Got inside a short way, but then um, we had a, a, a protest moving outside the base. There. It's not actually right in Darwin itself. It's some 20 kilometres out. So they are housed in the same barracks as the Australian Defence Forces. Well, in fact, we've got a de facto US base at Robinson. Virtually, it's a de facto troop foreign troops base there, which is going to be increased. The recent Osman talks, which the Defence Minister and the Foreign Defence Minister went to in the United States, and that was Pompeo and his entourage, their communique at the end mentioned increasing the deployment of US Marines to Darwin and the setting up of a US-funded fuel depot there and spare parts and munitions being stored in Northern Territory. Why would you do that unless you were prepared for some sort of activity or action, war action in the future? Why would you store fuel and munitions and spare parts and stuff? It's, it's really using Australia as a, as a base in this area for their troops and their equipment. In addition, the, the recent defence expenditure details mentioned lengthening the runway at Tyndall uh, near Catherine so that US bombers B-1 bombers could land and take off there, and most B-1 bombers can carry nuclear weapons, by the way. This is a, a real worry that we're becoming more and more a southern ocean space for the United States military. I know you can't compare the two, but we've just had this dreadful accident in Beirut with chemicals stored near the city, and yet they're going to... We, we don't know what they're going to store, do we? It's just store weapons or store whatever. If those bombers that can take off and uh, land at Tyndall, US um, B-1 bombers, if they can carry nuclear weapons, the question is then, would they be storing nuclear weapons on our soil? And that's a pretty important question. But the fuel, what sort of fuel is it? I have no idea, Jane, of course. We have no idea what sort of fuel. I'm talking about aircraft in ships or what sort of fuel, we have no idea. As you say, is there potential for an accident like it happened at, um, in Beirut, a certain an accident like that, and then they're down in the, the city area. But uh, equally con- of concern is why doing it, and what are they preparing for? The development of Tyndall Base, that was $500 million, wasn't it? Do you know how much of that has gone ahead? I haven't heard how far they've gone with that. Um, Jan, no, I think it was 500 million. It was primarily to lengthen 
the uh, runway and I guess associated facilities to facilitate the uh, large bombers landing and taking off there. I mean, what would we want to have bombers taking off from Australian soil? What, what are they going to bomb? That's the question, of course. And the issue, the hot issue at the moment is the South China Sea. The overall increase in defence spending, which uh, IPAN has put out uh, press releases about, is a great concern. That the, Scott Morrison has recently announced upping the defence spending from the normal annual amounts that go in to $575 billion over the next 10 years. What is that all about? What are they going to buy with that? They've talked about longer-range missiles. And how are they justifying it? Now, Scott Morrison has invoked the spectre of the 1930s and 40s in saying that we're approaching a time when uh, there could be another huge war to justify Australia spending this sort of money. Now, in any case, how does that um, protect us? I mean, if the Americans went to war with China, which is the one we're all worried about at the moment, in what way, where is Australia going to stand on that? And in what way would these missiles that, that go 300 kilometres, what does that do to protect Australia? In any case, this is a bit of a, a worry. We think that boosting up our defence powers in the Northern Territory with missiles, etc., and this uh, bomber, this bomber extending the runway, contributes to militarisation in our region. It actually undermines our security and peaceful relations with our neighbours. It doesn't help to um, promote peace in the region. That's a lot of money, 575 billion. We need it desperately at the moment for health and social needs. Australia is, is waging a war at the moment, you know, a war against this virus. Money is needed, not only to keep people alive, keep job keeper and job seeker and all that, and uh, money is required and the um, investment in, in, in health. So to relocate scarce public funds into this defence, huge defence expenditure seems to be, to I think, an irresponsible. You mentioned the Osmin talks. What are your thoughts on the outcome of those talks? I can actually issued a uh, press release on this. Richard Lonsky, next few minutes, was our spokesperson for uh, in discussions on it. IPAN said that Australia must resist any pressures for provocative actions in the South China Sea because the Americans seem to be pushing to uh, have Australia sail with them inside the uh, 12-mile nautical territorial limit around islands claimed by the Chinese. In the uh, Osman talks, they also spoke about this pure munitions build-up in the Northern Territory and IPAN says we should say, Australia should try to say no to that and, of course, no to the increase in marine deployment US troops in Northern Territory. There was some suggestion by statements from the Foreign Affairs Minister, Maurice Payne, uh, in which she said this, the relationship we have with China is very important and we have no intention of injuring it. We make our own decisions, our own judgments in the Australian national interest and about upholding our security and prosperity and values. Australia does not want to be boxed in. It wants freedom to manoeuvre and space to move. IPAN sought to clarify that statement from her because it's basically you that sounds sensible. 
who do want to have like, their own decisions, their own judgments in Australia's national interests. But that wouldn't be so if we, we went along with the US in uh, provocatively sailing within this 12-mile nautical limit around the territories of the islands they claim. That could well provoke a military response from China, and heaven knows where that might lead. We'd really like to know whether the government has bowed or will bow to pressure from the US in that respect, throwing the rocket rocket over there, or whether they haven't. And uh, certainly to resist that pressure would be in our our best interests. I'm speaking personally now, Jan. I think there's a case for what you call armed neutrality for Australia. And having an independent foreign policy and not just following along behind whatever the US says or big power says, or indeed down to any pressures from big powers, we need to have a policy of, I think, armed neutrality. You, you, you have to have some protection of the, the area around Australia and so on. And people wouldn't accept any, anything else. But neutrality seems to be a good policy in the current situation. Uh, it's not to our advantage to be involved in any sort of stash between China and the USA. Well, I don't notice other countries rushing to support the US up in that area. That's correct, Jan. I think um, I remember reading that South Korea and Japan both resisted pressures to, 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 to sail in that provocative area. But why would Australia go and, uh, and be so such a lapdog as to... Um, just go along with it. Okay, we've gone along with, with wars which we never have been in. We're talking here about Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, wars that never threatened Australia in any way, and we went along with the Yanks. But surely something's been learnt, and especially as China is a major trading partner, and I'm not saying that we should bow to any pressures from China either. I think Australia's position ought to be independent, and we should look at the well-being of our country and, and its needs of the Australian people, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't trade to mutual benefit with all countries, including China. Looking at that South China Sea area, hasn't Australia already sent warships into that area? Yes, they've sailed, but not inside the 12-mile territorial limit. And that's interesting, Jan, because I picked up a quote out of Malcolm Turnbull's memoirs, his book, I'm going to quote you what he said in that book. His government never sent naval vessels within the 12-mile limit because they feared they might be rammed or disabled by the Chinese Navy. If the Americans backed us in, then the Chinese would back off. But if Washington hesitated, or for whatever reasons decided not to, or was unable to immediately intervene, then we would have been uh, exposed. He said, my judgment was that given the volatile geopolitical climate at the time, especially between the USA and China, it wasn't a risk worth taking. Now, that suggests that Malcolm Turnbull wasn't sure that the Americans would back us if, in fact, Australia sailed within that 12-mile limit and provoked the Chinese military response. And so he, he, in his time, wouldn't condone it. That is interesting, I think. Because he doubted the Yanks uh, necessarily supported the deal. So, why on earth would we be bowing to their demand and doing such a provocative thing? Unless, of course, 
the Americans want Australia to provoke a response that they could then come in on with the Trump selection coming up. But you want to have a bit of a stash that might help him into re-election because you know what happens when there's a war on, they will get behind the president. Who knows? The trouble is when you've got nuclear-powered nations, you can't have a bit of a stoush, can you? No, because it so easily escalates. And the classic example, of course, was the First World War. How could such a terrible war escalate from such a small incident? And so a small incident in the South China Sea could escalate. And before you know what's happening, as you say, could there be a nuclear exchange? And, of course, that's the last thing anyone wants, especially we're thinking about that. Was was it yesterday or the day before was the 75th anniversary of the uh, terrible bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? That's what the peace treaty, the ban the bomb treaty is all about, to try and ban nuclear weapons full stop. But while they've got them, there's a potential to use them. And as you say, can a small incident escalate into something which we should not want to think about? Are the war games still on in Hawaii? Yes, they are still on. And as you know from reading um, iPhones on electronic publication boards, there is a Pacific Peace Network which involves Australian peace groups, New Zealand, Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines. A press release was put out calling for the cancellation of that RIMPAC war, ga- war games exercises, which Australia has sent off a whole lot of warships to be involved in. Again, these are war exercises. They are practising for war. That's why we're calling for them to be cancelled. Who are they practising for war against? There's always a, a scenario that they're working to. And that's, that's what happened with the Talisman Sabre war exercises off Queen's Coast um, last year. That was a huge American deployment and Australian deployment. And I think there's Japanese and, uh, and Malaysian troops involved too. That was quite open. That war exercise was about capturing islands and moving towards the mainland. And the capturing of islands is, of course, the islands in the South China Sea that China claims. That was a war exercise designed to prepare for such a scenario. And no doubt the RIMS has got their scenario too. And that's a huge uh, conglomeration of military and naval vessels, um, which I think in this month is taking place. Uh, They have not pulled out except for, I'm just reading here, Jordan and Israel were involved, and they have pulled out of that. Oh, it's and Jordan and Israel were involved in that huge impact then too. And of course, the, the world leader, uh, world, the world leaders such as the United Nations Secretary General have called for de-escalation of military build-up during COVID, and that's exactly what they're not doing. They are building up, but working contrary to what is in the best interests of the general fight against the international fight against this health virus, health uh, concern caused by the virus, that's causing enough fight for everyone, let alone to practicing the war. Yes, when you think of what's needed in the world today with people's health, education, housing, and you see these ginormous war machines all around the world soaking up all that money that could be used to help people. It is, uh, it is deplorable. Everyone knows the huge figures involved, but we have such serious issues with, and, and addressing climate change above all that. Totally irresponsible to waste such 
disgrace public money um, on such a useless build-up of military force. Now, the only reason I can think that this happens is that money is made out by the military-industrial complex. They want people to think of war. They want excuses for war. They want a reason to be given more money to create more weapons and weapons of mass destruction. That's profiteering that drives it and at the expense of so many other social needs. I don't know whether you would agree with me on this one, but it seems that increasingly on the ABC and SBS TV that there's more and more programs talking about the Second World War or the Vietnam War or whatever. It seems to me to keep people's mind there thinking about war. Do you agree with that? I do, because not just ABC and SBS. I don't listen to anything else. No, Channel 7 has, has a program every Monday called Military Monday, and it features an epic film about war. Military Mondays, they advertise it. I, I came across it the other day. I thought, oh, my, disgusting. Promotion of militarism. I mean, Military Mondays. So look at, if you look outside the ABC and SBS, you certainly see it also. But why so much emphasis on war, why not on peace and activity? See, when it comes to peace, do we have a ministry for peace? We have a ministry for defence and war. We don't have a ministry for peace. And when it comes to diplomacy, which is one of the alternative ways of tackling resolution of conflict, the Scott Morrison government cut the defect budget by 24%. So reducing our ability to address issues and regions and develop relations with regions and people so that alternative resolutions for conflict can be developed. We need to have a Ministry for Peace, don't you think, Jen? I quite agree with that one. But whether we'll get one or not is another matter, isn't it? Unfortunately, there's so much bipartisan support for defence and military issues. You know, the Labor Party being joined at the hip with the Liberals and the Coalition on these things. That dampens any public debate, and that's a really serious issue at the moment in Australia, among all the other serious issues we've got. Okay, well, thank you very much, Bevan. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Dan, for for calling on me. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Successive Australian governments never failed to emphasise the shared values we have with the US. It especially helps to convince Australians to go to war with the US around the world. But how much truth is there in that phrase? We share the same values as the US. This is the topic of an article in John Menager's Pearls and Irritations by Bishop George Browning, former Anglican Bishop of Canberra and Goulburn. George, before we look at whether there are any joint values, what does the word value mean to you? In, in a funny sort of a way, I'm less keen on values and more keen on virtues. Uh, there is a difference between the two. A, a, a virtue is a desire to live in a particular way. A value is really pragmatic and subjective, really. A, a virtue is much more of an objective ambition or aim in life, like righteousness or justice or peace, virtues for which we strive, values really are subjective, like uh, mateship, what, what the hell does mateship mean, or 
the kind of things that politicians generally say are Australian values really are the same kind of things that people all over the world aspire to. I'd like mm. to know who's behind that I am, you are, we are Australian issue. Yes, I don't know. It's become sort of the catchphrase on the ABC. You can hardly turn on to any program on the ABC without listening to it first. Uh, I suppose looking at it in the best possible light, I guess what it's doing is emphasising the reality that we are a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi society and that's a good thing to be reminded of I guess. Alright well let's go through these, you have chosen values first of all we are people on the veranda, the edge, the Americans are people on the hearth centre To go with Americans first their whole culture is about being the centre and, and they clearly perceive themselves and are taught to perceive themselves as really the most powerful nation in the world and everything revolves around them and because of that they have the right to intervene in other people's lives. And but yet their whole centeredness has made them very insular. There are many jokes about Americans and who are asked what the capital of Australia is and they say Vienna or something. Americans generally are not well informed about the rest of the world because they see themselves as a centre. On the other hand, in Australia, we do understand that we live a long way from the rest of the world, that we, in many respects, are more provincial than we are national. Uh, probably Victoria, where you live, and New South Wales, where I live, are less so. But in Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania, they are extremely provincial. They're, the people who live there owe loyalty very much to their state rather than to the nation. And so we have that kind of sense of living on the periphery. And we have that culturally too. We um, we sniff at the centre. We, we're not very keen on institutions. We don't really honour people who hold positions of power unless we see in them an inner integrity to which we're drawn. But we, we don't easily doff the cap to people simply because they have a position, whereas in Britain that clearly happens. We don't have in Australia the the, the equivalent of Westminster or, or St Paul's or the national emblems. Um, we have more provincial emblems. Um, I don't know that you in, in Melbourne particularly would say the, the Opera House in Sydney is the greatest building in Australia. You'd, you'd name one in Victoria, I'm sure, etc. We are a people of association. America are people of rights. Yes. This is probably one of the main differences, in my view. Americans believe that they are endowed with rights that pre-exist their birth, that they have to do with the Constitution, and that these rights uh, emphasize the centrality of the individual over and above society or the state. So uh, in America, there is resistance even to having universal health care because it seemed to be socialistic to do that. Whereas in Australia, uh, at least we've inherited some of the sense of association and social contract, which has been part of our British and European heritage. It's interesting that following the Second World War, when they were really desperately hard up economically, the national health was established because it was seen to be what was required. And it is, I think, a little frightening at the moment that the idea of rights, or to use that terrible expression, sovereign person, which has been in 
historically social media has started to infect Australians, but it, it, it's not essentially an Australian view. Americans, or at least half the Americans, are covert libertarians, really, who don't really think taxes should be paid or that uh, governments should uh, hold sway over their lives and people should be able to do whatever they like. In Australia, we're not essentially like that, although in my article towards the end I'm saying uh, there's a frightening sense in which conservative governments recently have drawn us into that kind of culture. And so individual rights and, uh, as, you, as we know, the government is looking at ways in which personal religion can be defended and, big, in a sense, bigotry can be defended. But in Australia, we are more likely to see that we belong through association and that while we cherish freedoms, we understand we have to simply sacrifice, which is the Anzac tradition, we have to sacrifice in order that those traditions and those rights can continue into the present generation. But they're not, as it were, endowed from the past, but they, we have to work on them in the present. And the rights in America are particularly focused on guns, of course, which I think most Australians would see to be utterly bizarre, even worse, quite repugnant, really. That's how Americans see themselves. So is it a bit of that also the fact that the, the constitutions of the two countries are so different? Yes, they, uh, they're totally different, and we don't have a Bill of Rights in Australia. And I've always opposed the Bill of Rights myself because of the reasons that I'm expressing. But I could accept the Bill of Rights as long as written into it there was a social contract because COVID-19 is showing up probably as, draft, uh, as graphically as anything ever has that we cannot do whatever we like. We are responsible for one another. We're responsible for each other's health. We're responsible for each other's freedom. And to think that you have the right to do what you want regardless of responsibility to others is a nonsense. And it is so divisive. I'm grateful, very grateful I live in Australia, not in the United States of America for those reasons. Also, both countries are countries of migrants. They are, but... America was established as a migrant colony running away from the authority of Britain, particularly, whereas Australia is a country that was established by the authority of Britain. That's two very different things. In Australia, we're quite rude about the Poms, but in a semi-joking way, and we have adopted largely the English law system and the English parliamentary system. We are more deferential in the COVID crisis on the whole, except for a few very, very extraordinary statements from individuals. When uh, Dan Andrews has said we're to do this, you and Victoria are buckling under and doing it. Uh, but that is not what happens in the United States of America. We are a spiritual people. Americans are a religious people. Do you believe that's hmm. changing, though? To a degree, when I say spiritual, in the broadest possible sense, the indigenous people are deeply spiritual. Their spirituality is to do with the land, with how they see themselves connected to one another, with uh, the sense of their dream time and their history and the stories that they tell. Uh, when you look at the stories of, of the early settlers and the, the folk songs and stories of Australia, they are deeply spiritual in a way. But there has been resistance for a long, long time to dogmatic religious dogmatism. And as I said in the article, from the very outset, 
the vast majority, or almost 100% of migrants to Australia nominated the denomination to which they belonged. But it was not because of belief so much as ethnic origin. I used to teach scripture in outback schools, and, and if you went through the records to the early days, it said English church, Irish church, Scottish church, etc., and or Lutheran or German church. The religious denomination was really an expression of national or cultural or ethnic identity. Today, in Australia, there is, largely through the evangelical and, and Pentecostal revival in Australia, there is growth in dogma, very much resisted by the vast majority of Australians, particularly because uh, of the personal ethic that is associated with that dogma, particularly in relation to uh, the abortion debate, euthanasia, and homosexuality, etc. I think still there is great resistance in majority of Australian minds and hearts to religion, and particularly institutional religion, and emphasised and made worse by the uh, Child Abuse Royal Commission. But deep down, I think most Australians are still spiritual in the sense we have a sense of meaning that goes that is beyond ourselves. We have a sense of awe and wonder about the bush, important to us, and etc. In my retirement, I find it quite easy, quite easy to connect with people who don't go to church, and to talk to them about spiritual values and etc. And sometimes it's easier to do that than with people who go to church who have fixed <laughs> fixed ideas. Dogma has to do with a closed mind. Spirituality has to do with openness. Do you find, though, you say that America, you, the politician has to have a religious affiliation or they, they won't get anywhere. Do you find that in Australia that it's becoming like that too? Obviously, the, our Prime Minister Morrison is an exception because it is very clear that he is a religious person. Uh, everybody knows he belongs to the Pentecostal Church. And he is currently, I think, very popular partly and largely because of he is perceived to be dealing with the COVID thing well. But many other politicians champion religion as well. Yes, they do. In America, you, you have to champion religion vocally. You have to say that you are a member of a church. Morrison, to his credit, doesn't overtly champion his church. It may well be the case, I'm not going to make any judgment about it, there may be, it may well be the case that many of the decisions he makes, strategies he forms, are shaped by his church affiliation, but he doesn't make a big noise of it. Increasingly in Australia, no religion is now almost the largest percentage on the census, it's certainly higher than Anglican uh, and Uniting Church and so on. When people write no religion, they are rejecting the idea of an affiliation with an institutional church. Let's talk about the difference between a pragmatist and an ideologue. An ideologue sees the world from a set of certainties, really, which tend to be black and white and tend to be divisive. In Australian politics, there are ideologies. On the right, ideology has largely to do with a neoliberal view of capitalism that things triple down and uh, privatisation of everything is the way to go, etc. And if you're an ideologue, you judge other people's views against the background of your ideology, which is usually a closed system. And if 
things are, appear to be contrary to your view, then you are likely to label them, as Trump does, as fake, even though the evidence shows they are right. They are fake because they don't fit with your view of the world. That's what ideology does. And unfortunately, a lot of ideology has a religious background. So that in the United States of America, an extraordinary number of people, I think it's in the 20s or 30s, almost maybe between a quarter and a third of the population, have an ideological religious view that the world was created 10,000 years ago, Adam and Eve were literally the first human beings, and that this view trumps science. Ideology has contributed to this false binary in which faith and religion are inseparable. You've got to choose one or the other. It has led to people having a suspicion about science and brought in a view that there are alternative facts that there are alternative opinions, but there cannot be alternative facts. Whereas pragmatism has to do with, we're in this particular set of circumstances, we will consider a response. To be pragmatic is to be open to different points of view, depending upon the circumstance in which you live. And because in Australia, uh, our circumstances continually vary, and diversity is what we live with, as I said in my piece, Dorothea McKellar, talked about we live in a country of contrasts, of, of droughts and flooding rains. We need to respond not with ideology, but with pragmatism. Unfortunately, for example, with the whole Murray River system, a proper way forward has been thwarted by ideologues who insist either on the extreme right or the extreme left. And there's been a very, very there's been great difficulty in coming to a reasoned um, position about one of Australia's greatest, greatest resources, i.e. its water. Ideologues largely, in my view, have closed minds to other views. I don't think Australians are ideologues, but our politicians have become ideologues, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Australian population is suspicious and lacking in trust, largely of the political elite. And also of other religions. Exactly. Well, I, I actually think myself the, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but is actually a closed mind. Ideologues insist on certainty, you know, drought-proofing Australia or the certainty is that they want. The reality is that apart from proverbially death and taxes, there are no certainties in life. And you have to be pragmatic and live with the circumstances which you've got. Insistence on certainties, which is to do with rights in America, is very dangerous because it takes us into a world of untruth or false expectations. Faith has to do with openness to the possibility, um, the possibilities of life that surround us. What I meant was tolerance of other religions. How does that work out with the two cultures? If you're an ideologue and your ideology is based in religion, then you are intolerant. There are many, many um, conspiracy theories running in America that assume that Muslims are the, the focus of the evils of the world and vice versa. Ideologically driven Muslims probably have the same view about Christians. There is less difference denominationally in the world today 
than there is between those who have what is what you might call a conservative faith and those who have a more liberal faith. Liberal does not mean wishy-washy, you know, not standing for one thing or another. Liberal basically means accepting the best. So a true liberal is somebody who enjoys the art, enjoys um, science, who enjoys culture, and, and etc., etc., who's prepared to embrace the various aspects of life, whereas the conservative draws the shutters down on those things that are not consistent with their worldview. You find conservatives and liberals in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church, and today I find myself in greater commonality with uh, more liberal Muslims or more liberal Jews or more liberal Roman Catholic Presbyterians than I do with conservative members of any of those denominations or faiths. Finally, George, Australians are globalists. America have increasingly become isolationists. They were isolationists for a very long time in history, though, weren't they? They were, but under Trump, they've become far, far more so. And unfortunately, uh, because our politicians have tended to think that our values, current values are the same, conservative politicians in recent times have, have tended to draw us into the same isolationist mould. So that, unfortunately, in recent times, Australia has tended to be suspicious of the United Nations. It, it hasn't always upheld international law, and as you and I have talked about, uh, often enough on this program that in the Middle East Australia has not stood behind international law in the struggle between the Palestinian people and Israel and uh, because international law says that you cannot settle in other people's territory and we've supported Israel in doing so and also in East Timor we had to be drawn kicking and screaming to abide by international law, accept fairness for the East Timorese. And as we all know, Bernard Kaleri and, and Witness Kay are currently facing a jail system because they challenged Australia's behaviour. The problem that I see is that our Australian politicians have drawn us into a view that our values and American values are the same, and they are not. And this has brought us, has bringing us great trouble. And we are a trading nation. We have to be globalists. Uh, we, we need to trade with all the countries of the world. Uh, our people come from all the countries of the world. We travel to all countries of the world. And we desperately need uh, the world to abide by international accepted law and custom. We're living at the moment at a period of crossroads. I'm not saying we need to jump into the bosom of China at all, uh, because there are aspects of Chinese life that clearly are quite abhorrent. But we need to be clear that America and its values are not ones that we can fully embrace either. Do you believe that Australia is getting a really bad name in the in the world now because of its policies and particular of sort of hanging onto the coattails of Trump with all his policies? Well, again, you and I have talked about this before, but we, we do have a shocking name in relation, in relation to environmental responsibility. Uh, this is another example of us going along with America and behaving as if 
we can do whatever we like environmentally. It is our business. Well, it isn't our business. Unfortunately, the ecological disaster which we face has no boundaries. The world must get together and agree that we will act in a certain way to avoid absolute catastrophe. And at the moment, Australia is lagging behind almost every other reasonable democratic country in its response, uh, with America aside. But even in America, despite Trump, uh, places like California, etc., are doing more than we're doing. Yes, I think Australia, in some respects, has a bad name. In other respects, we have a reasonable name. But we need to be very careful that we don't become, through our political elite, something that we're not. We're not America. We are Australia. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with Bishop George Browning, former Bishop of Canberra and Goulburn. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible, and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us, is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 As the new Anti-Terrorism Act in the Philippines took effect on the 18th of July, various trade union leaders, human rights advocates and activists from the Asia-Pacific expressed their solidarity and support to the Filipino people's call to junk the law. And the killings and repression continues unabated. Today we talk about just one of the deaths, that of a 71-year-old activist and peace consultant, which highlights the cruelty and injustice of the Duterte regime. The victim is Randall Echanas, and to talk about his life and work for peace and his brutal death, I'm joined by fellow human rights activist in Sydney, Peter Murphy. Peter, this is the death of a man who's fought for justice all his life. Can you expand on that and his early life, how he became an activist and a peace consultant, and what he achieved for his people? This is a, a person who, in his youth, um, that is, we're talking about the early 1970s, you know, was a student involved in the early period of the you know, controversy and conflicts around Marcos and the dictatorship that eventually happened there in 1972. And uh, he's been you know, imprisoned by Marcos. He, he was imprisoned under President Arroyo 
and all that time, all those decades, he basically worked with the farmers in the Philippines to strive for a genuine land reform. Did he finish his university studies or did he go on to other things? I'm not aware that he got to finish employed, as far as I know, in, in a professional role you know, based on a university qualification. He was uh, involved in the National Peasant Movement called uh, KMP as its uh, initials. Where was he based? Manila, but he comes from that sort of uh, Ilocos area in the northwest uh, of uh, Luzon, the, the main island at the northern end of the archipelago. And uh, he worked in um, the Isabella province, which is on the east coast, the northeast coast of Luzon as well. These are areas where he, he did a lot of uh, organising. How much of his life would he have spent in prison? I think he, he was three years in jail under Marcos and uh, about eight months to a year under President Arroyo. I remember personally you know, campaigning for his release uh, under the Arroyo presidency. Why did she put him in jail? I'm not aware now of the charge. The Arroyo presidency, which really went from around 2000 to 2008, a very repressive period. There were a very large number of people like Randall who actually shot dead, rounding up people and alleging that they were some kind of rebel or conspiring to overthrow the government or, you know, maybe more particularly that they, they were found with a firearm or a, some explosive. This was a very common thing. And generally, people were simply taken off the streets for one year, two years, and eventually someone got to court. The court would say, well, there's just no evidence here and release them. This was the, the pattern there in the Arroyo time that caught up Randall. And how did he fare under Duterte? Unfortunately, under Duterte, he, he ended up being killed. Really very heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching to think it through because Randall was a nominated, formally registered peace consultant for the National Democratic Front of the Philippines to advise and work on the farmers' issues. And he took part in peace negotiations in Rome and in Oslo, I think, uh, in 2016 and 2017. So they were sitting across the table from gov the government negotiating team and he played a distinct and a clear role in the formulation of a, uh, an agreement on social and economic reforms, which is really the very first substantive negotiation for the peace process after decades of, the, of effort. He was advocating that there must be a sort of lifting of the burden off the farmers by providing them with land and that, of course, they shouldn't be uh, loaded up with debt. That is, they shouldn't have to buy the land of the rich landlord who wasn't using the land in the first place. And this actually was achieved. The, the draft agreement, which was initialed in, I think, December 2017, included that idea, which is a big achievement. Duterte refused to endorse that agreement, even though it was initialed by both negotiating teams. They have a person who is a negotiator in a process in you know, which the government was a party and which was overseen by a third party sponsor, the Royal Norwegian government. And yet the state has decided to assassinate him. That also happened to another peace consultant, Randall. His name was Randy. Randy Malayo. Um, who was uh, shot dead on a bus 
I think in 2018, uh, a bus going from Manila to his home. You know, the government has assassinated two people that it was negotiating with. And it's, it's shocking that you know, this government accuses lots of other people of being terrorists, but uh, what it's doing really is really very blatant state terrorism. And Randall Achanis' case is, is a, in a tragic, in a very recent example. We're talking about August 10. And, and it was a very brutal killing because it seems five or six people entered his uh, residence after midnight and uh, his body has uh, 40 stab wounds by three separate knives. Horrific, really horrific. Was he alone? There was another person in the place with him whose name is not known to me, who's simply been described as a neighbour. But I think uh, Randall was sick. This person was simply, you know, making sure he was fed and uh, had uh, bathing and so on. Uh, while he was recovering. And I don't know what the sickness was either, Jan. We could even be dealing with some kind of COVID-19 dimension to this, but um, just more complicated or or more grave that um, Randall was 71 years old. He was ill and, and this was done to him. In the bigger picture of things, President Duterte declared that all of the peace consultants should be arrested. Simply one of those incredible speeches he gives. It's up to the police, theoretically, to decide if there's grounds to arrest somebody and then take them to a court. In uh, Randall's case, uh, I, I, there was no specific charges and he hadn't been arrested. But I'm sure he was being careful, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, his residence not being well known to many people. And, and in, in any case, he was ill, so he wasn't really going out on the streets. And you have to realise we're in a pandemic period where there has actually a lockdown or a curfew sort of situation generally been applied since the end of March or mid-March. It's, it's been relaxed once and then reapplied more recently. You know, people shouldn't really be out on the street that much anyway. But I, I know that because of the general threat, also what happened to Randy, but the general threat of uh, arrest that was issued by Duterte, all of these people like Randall Achanis, would have been trying to carry out their task, which is continuing to talk to, in his case, the peasant base. They would try to keep doing that work, but um, avoid confrontation with any authorities. Even in in death, he was pursued? Very, very upsetting. His body had been taken to a funeral home. His family were visiting uh, the funeral home and wanted to ensure there was an autopsy and the police raided the funeral home and seized the body. Now there's a court case being initiated to retrieve the body um, so that a proper investigation of, of the injuries and, and a proper dignified funeral can take place. And for his wife and family, it's you can't imagine the distress. First of all, he's been brutally murdered. Second, then there's this really humiliating, denigrating type of behaviour by the police. Yeah, it's very offensive, of course, in any culture and and in the Filipino culture that this has happened. And in recent weeks, this has happened in other cases. I haven't got the details in front of me, but three people killed in Laguna, which is just to the south of Manila, about three weeks ago. The police have held the bodies in a camp. Their families can't see the bodies. 
It's alleged that these three were killed, in, you know, that they were New People's Army, it was an armed clash, but there's actually no, no proof of that. At this stage, I haven't seen any proof of that. This is happening a bit more around the place, and it, I think it's a way to crush families and crush communities, you know, in multiple ways, besides you know, the actual heavy blow of killing someone. What has been the international reaction to his death? At this stage, there's been protests, uh, events online and in the street, events in the Philippines and also in Europe and uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, in Australia, there's been letter writing and so on. So governments uh, and up to the level of the United Nations have all been registering complaints about the killing of Randall. And here in Australia, we're going to push it harder because, you know, the Australian government is providing uh, military uh, aid to the Philippines. It's providing political cover to President Duterte as a sort of regular figure in the international community instead of the pariah that he should be. The killing of somebody like Mr. Achanas is a very high-level political crime. It should be addressed properly you know, in a public way by governments around the world. We are from the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines and we will be pushing harder for a proper response. And also pushing for Michelle Bachelet to actually go to the Philippines and see for herself what is happening. Yes, well, she wants to go to the Philippines, but she's been denied entry by the Duterte government. I don't think there's any lack of willingness on her part. There is an upcoming session of the... United Nations Human Rights Council starting September 14 at which the issues of the Philippines are to be addressed. High Commissioner Bachelet made a formal report, a very critical report about human rights in the Philippines on the 30th of June this year to the Human Rights Council so the issue is alive and the killing of Mr. Chanis is, is a subsequent to June 30 and it's going to be I think a feature of the debate in uh, September but one of the specific demands is that the special rapporteur on these political murders, extrajudicial killings, be able to go to the Philippines and investigate the situation. And Duterte has also been blocking that for a couple of years. That's the really specific demand, and we, we hope we can make the breakthrough on that in September. Well, it makes people think about the role of the UN then when a high-profile person like Michelle Bachelet can't go to a country because the regime says you're not coming. What's the point in having these organisations then if a government can just flout their decisions? It's the question is not so much what's the point of having something like the Human Rights Council or the High Commissioner on Human Rights. The question is, what should the international community do when uh, a member state so flagrantly breaches its own commitments, the basic human rights of its own citizens? How should it be treated in the international community? What should the individual state be doing to somehow call to the president uh, of uh, the Philippines or other officials in the Philippines? Build more mechanisms to be... Uh, you know, used to pursue this issue. One avenue directly is that the International Criminal Court is investigating in a preliminary sense the massive number of killings by police in the Philippines in, in, in the so-called war on drugs. Further 
issues like this killing of Mr. Echanis can be presented to the ICC as further evidence uh, um, of the situation in the Philippines. And then the UN Security Council itself can refer a matter to the International Criminal Court. It can also make its own decisions on some kind of sanction on a, on a member state. It's uh, in breach of the UN Charter. These are the pathways. What's really painful for people like us and, of course, for the families and friends of the victims in the Philippines or any other country experiencing this is how slow it all is at the international level. Um, at the national level, there's more chance. You know, say in Australia, it's a quicker process for a government to come to some kind of assessment and conclusion and to decide to change its way of inter interacting with the Philippines. It's a sort of a more immediate thing. I think we in Australia can get more engaged with. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much for this discussion, Jan.